when you're out in the ocean, when the swells reach a certain shallowness of water, that's actually a very calculable thing. So you have to keep track of what the depth of the water is and what the biggest size of rogue wave might be. Because if you're too close or you get too big a rogue wave, it, you'll be crushed in a huge roller. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Mason here. Y'all know that we love the Adventure Sports Podcast community and we worked out a special deal with Backpackers Pantry. They make uh, dehydrated and freeze-dried food and they make the most incredible meals. They have over 50 options, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, all of that. And if you are a listener to the Adventure Sports Podcast, you can get 25% off your order by going to backpackerspantry.com and using the promo code ADVENTUREsports25. Uh, The link to that and the specific code will be in the show notes. And yeah, if you need to order some backpacking meals for an upcoming trip or you just want to load up, it's for a limited time and it's limited to 100 users. So please go on Backpackers Pantry and use the code and get 25% off your order. All right, here's the episode. Hi, friends. Thank you so much again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I have a really fun show for you today. I've got a great guy here, Stephen Ladd. Stephen, you prefer to go by Steve or Stephen? Steve, mostly. Steve. So Steve did something so novel several years ago and then did a, a quasi-repeat of this with his wife, Jenny. And I just want you to to get a, a load of this, right? So he built a 12-foot sailboat, and he traveled 15,000 miles in a 12-foot sailboat in three years. And uh, just a really amazing story, a spirit of adventure, and he just uh, disclosed to me that it wasn't really about the sailing. It was about the travel, the adventure of the travels. So, Steve, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. So I have to ask, wow, a 12-foot boat, and it was only 11-foot waterline, right? That's right. And a couple more details here that I pulled up. It was 250 pounds, light enough to pick up if you had to, 8-inch mm-hmm. draft, and 68 square foot of sail. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's like a suitcase. It's a, it's a very small rowboat with um, small sails. So it's, it's, a, it's a light kind of squirrely platform, but it's, but it's light. Obviously, its um, strength lies more in smaller waters. But my voyage did t- take me across wide passages as well. Mm. Well, we're going to get into the details of all of that a little bit later, but I want to start more with who is Steve Ladd? Um, where did you grow up, and what led you to this this thirst for adventure? Well, I grew up where I am again right now in Bremerton, Washington. Um, that's a suburb of Seattle, and my um, upbringing was not so unusual, but um, I did get a lot of... Um, family uh, level of outdoor adventure typical to the northwest like skiing and hiking and so um, as I matured I continued that with um, a lot of mountaineering sports and then boating I 
my family didn't have a, a sailboat ever, but we were around boats. And then, and this is no longer when I'm extremely young, it's when I was getting into my 30s that I decided to design my own boat and go on a big adventure. And I, I had traveled before for like a year at a time in Europe, Asia, and Africa. That was right out of high school. But but I then <clears throat> went into a more normal career path. I became a city planner, not on a big scale, but for small cities around the Puget Sound area. And so I, I took a break, like a mid-career break, and planned on going on a, on a big trip. And um, the one-year trip that I did right out of high school, it was totally engaging and formative for me. And I was hitchhiking and riding a motorcycle, and um, it just blew me away. And it helped create who, me, who I am. That is somebody who looks around at the whole big wide world and um, tries to figure out who I am <clears throat> based on what I'm seeing in these places where nothing is familiar. And um, <clears throat> so I had always meant to do it again whenever I could. So I got to myself, got myself to a position in my career where I felt that I was economically secure enough to do this. And I started with the idea to uh, build a sailboat large enough for my girlfriend at that time. But then when we started hitting the rocks in that relationship, I scaled the design down and I um, did calculations at, at a couple different sizes. That is, I was trying to decide the scale at which to, to, to scale it down to. And I found that at 12 feet in length, instead of the original, it was 30 feet length. But at 12 feet in length, it had an appropriate waterline. That is, it would sink. My, my body weight as crew would cause it to sink into the water the correct amount, not mm. be too heavy nor too light. And that was a good weight because the boat in that scale was um, 250 pounds about, so it's light enough for me to pull up on a beach. When you can pull a boat, boat up on the beach, you get a whole nother level of versatility you can go places and not worry about necessarily having to anchor out um, you can instead pull up onto a beach it gives you um, more options in some cases and fewer options in others other cases of course but i i didn't regret my decision wow that's and, pretty cool so you were the human ballast for this thing <laughs> right it has no ballast and so your crew it's like a dinghy your your crew weight how you sit and lean and so forth is what keeps the boat upright and the name of the boat was Squeak. Yeah, that's right. What was the story behind Squeak? Um, it was named after a cat I used to have. Oh, that's something. Not many cats can claim that uh, <laughs> that they have a boat yeah. named after them. Yeah, well, when 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 we get to the later voyage, that boat was named after one of our cats, too. So, oh, that's and if they have a third boat, it's going to be named after another cat we had, too. So <laughs> it's all cats. All right. It's right all on. So I have to ask... Um, what was it that kind of hooked you on the idea of sailing for travel? And what was it that kind of booted you out the door? It seems like there's always a story about, yeah, it's time, I'm going now, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, the um, as I say, the, the design took a turn to where it was small, and then that suggested what I would do with it. I I sort of started with the boat and then ended up with what I should do with the boat. And the, I decided what I should do is um, that small, it's easy to, to portage. And so I, 
I put it in the back of a friend's, I wasn't even in the back, a friend of mine had a van, and it fit inside his van, kind of on edge. <laughs> wow. And uh, he was leaving on vacation at that time. This is just as I was finishing the boat. He was leaving on vacation. He offered to give me a ride. He was going to uh, Glacier National Park, Montana. And so I looked up some USGS maps, and I found that there is a stream just east of that on the east side of the Continental Divide where I thought would be enough water to begin my voyage there, and that's a tributary of the Missouri River. So that's where I started, and I I begun my voyage thus um, on, a, on a river, riverine um, section of rivers in North America. That's the first of four really very different parts of this voyage. Oh, yeah. Different, totally different segments. And so you could also row this boat, right? You had to wear locks and, right. and you were able to row it. So probably the first part of the trip, it was more about that than it was about sailing. Yeah, definitely. More, more rowing in the rivers. So it's almost a drift boat for a while. So you ended up going down the Missouri, down the Mississippi, and then you, you got a portage to Panama, correct? Right. And then you yeah. went down the, the west coast of Ecuador? No, it's the west coast of Panama and Colombia. Okay, Panama and Colombia. And then you got another portage that got you into Venezuela. What river was that? The portage was across the Andes Mountains to a tributary of the Orinoco. Of the Orinoco. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, there was your seafaring voyage that went up through all the uh, the the Virgin Islands and and up through that island chain back to uh, the U.S. around that's Florida. Right. That's right. So that's an amazing trip. That's an amazing trip in a twelve foot boat. Well, it's a it's an unusual form of travel. Um, it's it's kind of in between other forms of travel. It's it's like sailing, but it's also kind of like hiking in the sense that my camp stove was just what I used when I go hiking, and I. I, you know, my level, my types of equipment were like hiking equipment and you're on land quite a bit of the time because you're pulling up on the beach at night. So it's kind of a hybrid form of travel. Oh, that's fun. So I guess, you know, you, you mentioned that you started as a 30 foot boat and it became a 12 foot boat. Um, did the smallness of it, was that part of the inspiration or was it just kind of like, Oh, I could do this. Well, the smallness of it, uh, although it was sort of, coincidental as to what was happening in my life it it suited me well because i'm a minimalist anyway um and not not maybe not to an extreme i do have a car and a motorcycle and stuff but uh, i try to keep my material possessions to a minimum and i try to not spend a lot of a lot of gas money and i mean i try to not waste the world's resources and so it suited me i like keeping a small kit i like to have fewer fewer objects about myself, but have them be in good condition and well-organized. And so it suited my uh, my tendencies, which are to be sort of almost anal about what I've got, and then I've taken care of it, and I'm kind of ready to go. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for this kind of adventure or that kind of adventure. I have a list for what to throw in my backpack for this, and I have a list for what to throw in my car for that. So it kind of, kind of suited me, that is, um, requiring of myself that I keep things organized in a very small space. Yeah, that's kind of fun. It's it's similar to backpacking in that regard. Right. A, a lot of backpackers find that, you know, after a couple of trips, they find out what they don't need 
and they start learning how to use one thing for multiple things, multiple mm-hmm. uses, and mm-hmm. how to be super efficient so that they have a, a lighter pack weight. Um, so you had to do all of this to fit in this boat. And I've heard that that's kind of a common theme with a lot of people that like to do sailing and cruising because there's always a limit to the space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously a big, a big, uh, zone of, um, big quandary area is, um, the tools you might need to fix your boat and the repair materials you might need. That's, uh, that's something where you'd sort of like to have a lot more, but you don't, you know, so you just have to go with what you can fit, you know? Right. Well, another thing that comes into play when we're talking about sailing in particular are the different systems that you allow yourself to have on the boat because the systems add some versatility, some convenience. Uh, It might allow you to do things you wouldn't do otherwise, but every time you add a system to the boat, now you've got another something to maintain. Yeah, that's very true. Very, very true. So uh, most sailors, sailors, their their trips are frustrated by – by the complexity in their systems. It's mm. almost it's almost universal. If you look at like people who go on charter cruises, it's it's often flawed by the generator giving out or something like that. Right. So in this case, what systems did you have? I mean you had the boat that floated, you had a place to sleep, you had places to store gear, you had oars, you had sails. What else? Well this was nineteen ninety, so there was no there almost was no, no GPS at that time. At that time, I, I certainly did not have one. I had no radio for most of that time, but nor was I for much of that time in an area where radio would have done any good anyway. Hmm. And I had a little Svea camp stove, and it was all pretty small, pretty minimal, a few tools. And a compass. Uh, certainly a boat's compass, but it's a bit, just a simple boat's compass like what you have in a car. It actually was an automotive compass like you put on your like you put on your dashboard. Wow. And, so how uh, did you do your navigating? Well, it would all be called <clears throat> dead reckoning or point to point sailing. That is you're just sailing along a coast and looking for this point of land and then that point of land. You're just keeping track of your more approximate distance traveled and so forth. Well, I think the idea is so novel that you could do this length of a trip with such simple systems, and especially because you did some big water crossings with this. Yeah, and those were a little more iffy. I did carry a, I did carry a, a sextant, but <clears throat> it was not practical to use because a little boat like this just bobs like a cork, and you right. can't hold it steady. So what you really have to do is you have to study each crossing ahead of time, whether it, well, any time that. The other side is some somewhere out of view, and you have to make a sort of analysis of whether, based on the uh, current flow and which way it is relative to your line of travel and so forth, and then you pick a compass setting that you think will compensate for all those factors, and then you hope to see what you're looking looking at, you know, and then 24 hours later, if you you, you hope that that's that it's coming up on your horizon, mm. and if it isn't. Then you went off a little bit somehow. You've decided whether to go left or right and try to find it. Well, do you know what the hull speed was for your boat? That little boat, a boat of that size, has a hull speed of about four knots. Four knots. Which is a little more than four miles per hour. So at four knots, there are going to be some currents that are going to be more than that. So you have mm-hmm. to choose carefully or you're, you yeah. could actually be going backwards. 
yeah, a current sometimes can be almost that fast. So, of course, yeah, you have to take them into account. Well, and some of the river currents might be faster than that. So it could be that the fastest travel you had was on some of the rivers. Yeah, that's true. Um, the Missouri, uh, the lower Missouri, averaged six knots. They That was kind of an artificial reasoning for that. They have these constri- man-made constrictions that cause the river to go fast in order to scour the navigational channel. So it's mm. not really a natural condition, but yeah, that's a very fast river. On average, the rivers don't go that fast. On average, an average river speed is probably about two knots, but that one was like six knots. So it took three years, and uh, why don't we just dive into a a little bit of an account of what the journey was like? I guess the the sleeping space had to be pretty limited. Were you able to, to sleep while you were underway, or did you always have to pull out somewhere? We'd always um, stop, and there was a little cabin in this boat. It has an enclosed cabin that holds all my stuff in the daytime, and it's what I sleep in in the nighttime, but I have to take my stuff out and put it into the cockpit in order to sleep. So, no, I cannot travel in that boat while I was underway because mm-hmm. I had to um, take all the contents out into a unseaworthy condition that is just sitting in the cockpit in order for me to lay inside. And so that's always um, in a secure place like an anchorage or pulled up on a beach. And But I can close the hatch and I can get out of the rain. And But I, I have just enough room inside there to roll over in my sleep, sit sit up almost upright. My, my, I have to cock my head a little bit to sit up. And um, I actually found it quite comfortable. Wow, that's cool. So Let's go to the beginning. You, you put the boat in the back of your buddy's van, and you found this, this creek that you could start going down. What was it like when you realized that you were launching into this endeavor? Yeah, it was really, really funny or fun. We, we went to this place where um, the stream is called the Milk River. Milk, because it's kind of milky in color. Hmm. And it has a very definite, very definite point at which it becomes navigable, at least to my boat, and that's where there's this, um, it's actually a man-made, it's called a siphon, where this water is being taken from a, from a distant source for irrigation purposes and comes out of a pipe. And at that point where it's coming out of the pipe, it was deep enough for me to, to navigate. And it started right at the Canadian border. That, I was, that is, I was in Montana, but within the, about a half hour, I was in Canada and stayed in Canada for several weeks as it was flowing through Alberta. And this is very remote country. I had only a roadmap of that just shows the, you know, the river as a light blue line, um, showed me where the roads were and where the towns were. And aside from that, I had no real information. The, the stream did flow through some rapids that I was just barely able to manage. (laughs) Um, and at times getting out and, tying a rope to the bow and kind of walking it down, you know, hand hand over hand, lowering it through a rapid, then snubbing up and walking to it, then continued like that again. Well, just kind of curious, you're talking about rapids. Did it have any sort of a keel? No, no, no keel. No keel. So I thought maybe a slide board, but not even that. Oh, it has lee boards. Lee boards are like keels on the sides that just – hang kind of loose like 
like a chicken wing, but they engage when you are sailing in order to slide sideways uh, in a leeward direction. Okay. So that probably helps you to be able to tack a little bit and that sort of thing. When, yeah, that's for sailing only. It has no purpose otherwise. So you had to navigate some rapids and work your way through the rapids in the milk. Is, is it Milk Creek or Milk Stream? Milk River. Milk River. And then that eventually led you to the Missouri. The Missouri River, yeah. And down the Missouri River, I had left on this voyage too late in the year. It was I left in August in it started getting late in the year, so I short-circuited some of it. I rented a car and put this boat on top of the car and drove 600 miles to Omaha, Nebraska, so I did not go down the South Dakota part of the voyage and uh, started again there. And then went from Omaha down the rest of the Missouri to where it joins the Mississippi and down that to New Orleans. And <clears throat> arriving arriving in New Orleans like in December, so a lot of the time it was kind of cold, but um, a lot of varied conditions <clears throat> and extremely varied scenery and topography. You know, you've got the Great Plains, which are dry and kind of barren, and then it becomes more wooded and agricultural and stuff like that, mm. urban. Yeah. So did you meet a lot of people along the way, or were you pretty much just kind of solo? I, I met a lot of people, you know, when you're traveling alone, you become a magnet. You're more, for me anyway, I'm more, I become more outgoing and I had a lot of characters that I met there that are written about in my book. <laughs> That's fun. So you mentioned your book. We might as well tell the listeners how they can find it and we'll come back to that again later. But the name of the book is Three Years in a 12-Foot Boat. And right now it's a, uh, it's an ebook that you can get from Amazon. Is that the best way to get it? Yeah, that's the best way. Okay. So if you are interested in, in hearing this story in detail, I read a few excerpts from the book, and your writing is, is, is very nice, and I'm sure that would be a delightful read. So um, that's Three Years in a 12-Foot Boat from Amazon. If you want to get into backpacking but you're not sure where to start, go check out campcrate.net. Campcrate can help you plan the backpacking trip of a lifetime and supply you with all the rental gear you need. Simply go online and choose your gear and your itinerary. Campcrate will then ship your gear anywhere in the U.S. When your trip is finished, use the pre-printed return label to ship the gear back. It's that easy. Campcrate. Rent. Explore. Return. I'm trying to get a feel for what it was like, because if you contrast what you're doing, floating solo in a small boat down these rivers, just for starters, compare that to the daily grind as a city planner, right? I mean, this is a vast contrast. Oh, yeah. I just uh, and always enjoy being alone in nature. I have no trouble with that. Um, I can be outgoing, but I'm a little bit more my true self as a somewhat introverted person and I can be in glaciers or deserts or something, you know, for quite a while before I get too lonely. But then I hit some kind of town and I'll probably look for a bar and <clears throat> or something and, and strike up a new friendship or two. Sure. Let's say that you're three weeks into this, this beginning of this journey. That's just long enough to kind of fall into the rhythm of it. 
were you sure then at that point that you were doing the right thing? Oh yeah, it was uh, it was just total total excitement, just totally totally sure that I had done the right thing and no doubts whatsoever. It was just totally in my element. It's just a good time in my life. I had I had kind of all my all my adult life anyway, I had a lot of wanderlust and like I said, I was satisfying that wanderlust just as much as I could by wilderness experiences and cross country ski trips and stuff. But um, starting from that time I traveled for a year just out of high school until this voyage, I hadn't done any real serious traveling. So finally I was again, you know, and it was just so great to be really on the road again in, in indefinite travel. There was no timeline when I had to conclude it. I had a rough idea that it was going to be a year or two or three, but that's all I knew. Mm, very cool. So I know that people have to have a thousand questions, even just floating the Missouri and the Mississippi. That's that's a huge adventure in its own right, you know? So what about uh, having to, to watch out for other vessels? I mean, these are navigable rivers. You've got all sorts of, of heavy traffic on these rivers. Was that an issue for you in your small boat? In my opinion, it was not that difficult or dangerous, but I was often honked at by the big tows that you call it a tow when you've got a tugboat that's pushing a line of uh, rat barges. Right. And I would just squirrel my way around them and everything, but they would sometimes honk the horns, probably irritated at me because they think they're going to run me over, but I, I didn't have any close calls. <laughs> and did any of them throw a big enough wake to rock the boat too much? Oh, yeah, that's that's actually part of the fun of it. They they <laughs> throw up a big wake, especially when they're going upriver. When they're going upriver, they're having to open up those whatever there are, diesel generator turbo machines, right. and they, they kick up a wake that is huge. And um, here's something I actually did. I um, And this must have really irritated them if they saw me, but I don't think they ever saw me. That's that I would – uh, come alongside them, and just as I was drawing abreast of them, I would slip into their wake, and I would go down their wake like a roller coaster because their wake is just—it is just a roller coaster of waves. It's probably uh, you rise ten feet, then you drop ten feet, then you rise ten feet, then you drop ten <laughs> feet. So you're just going—you're going fast up and down, and this thing that's because they're squirting thousands of gallons of water behind them, and it makes this big roller coaster of waves. So I did that partly to get extra distance downstream. You know, I was increasing the, the current of the river by going into their wake, but partly it was just fun. <laughs> well, I, it reminds me of some of the wave trains that people go over with rafts in the Grand Canyon or something. Well, yeah, it was it was just exciting. Yeah, I don't think it was dangerous. <laughs> I did it anyway. <laughs> and so Squeak had no issues with that, did just fine. Nah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's really, really cool. So any advice for people that say, you know what, I've always wanted to, to float the Mississippi. I'm just going to do it someday. Um, a couple of bullet points here that you would say, well, watch out for this or make sure you do that. Hmm. Oh, no, I can't really think any real um, impediments. There are locks and dams occasionally, and you just have to decide how you're going to handle those. I had never any difficulty with dams because my boat was so small that I just easily got a ride around the dam from the boat launch on one side of the dam to the boat launch on the other side of the dam. That was like nothing to it. Um, uh, the parts of the rivers that I chose to navigate 
on the Missouri and the Mississippi didn't have any locks, so I didn't have to worry about that. Um, just uh, get a small, rather small, simple boat uh, and and go for it. There's really no great dangers, in my opinion. So what about camping on the shore? Do you have any issues finding a place? Um, not usually. That's one of the beauties of river travel, by the way, as, as opposed to ocean-going travel, is that it's easier, much easier to find a place to camp. The typical river is going to be meandering you know, left and then right, and every time you've got a bend, there's a good chance that that's a good place to stop. Often when you've got a bend, you've got kind of a back channel going back kind of behind yourself because the rivers, when they get higher, have multiple choices they can follow, you know. But um, there's always there's always good places. There's only rare exceptions to that, and that's like in um, urban settings. Once once I got down into the um, New Orleans area, there was like 30 miles of just high banks, and there was no place to to camp there. Sometimes sometimes you have to do other things, but that's 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 a rarity. Mm. Well, I would love to spend the rest of the show on the rivers, but that would be a travesty. We've got to move on to some of the other adventures. So from New Orleans, you uh, shipped your boat. What happened was I found a ship that would take me on as crew. That is, I sold myself as a seaman and uh, just brought my boat along, and they dropped me off where they were going to, which was Panama. So Panama was not necessarily your choice. It was just where they happened to be going. Right. And then once I was there and they dropped me off there at the opening of the Panama Canal, I chose to go through the Panama Canal and continue south along the Pacific coast of Central America and South America. How fun. So how did you find Panama? Was it was it everything you expected or surprising or? Well, that that's the worst part of Panama, right in the canal zone. Yeah. I was robbed at knife point on the second or third day. Um, it's it's pretty rough. It's rugged rugged conditions and not safe and um i i i then had the most difficult and scary part of the voyage coming up which to which was to go down the pacific coast of panama and colombia because that at least then and and to to a lesser extent now is real terra incognito people just don't cruise there it's way too dangerous you've got the drug trade and you've got a lawlessness and you've got a coastline that is uh, very sparse on harbors. It's mostly without any kind of harbors. Mm. There's other kinds of navigational difficulties. One is that the tidal range is very high. Typically, the high tide is 20 feet higher than the low tide, wow. which makes it difficult to pull up onto a beach or whatever because you might have a tidal run out of a half a mile or a mile or something like that of just mud, you know. And um, stuff like that. There also, what's um, going south, you have the wind and the current against you. So it took me six months to go 600 miles, a very low rate of speed, excruciatingly slow. And <clears throat> there would just be um, nothing but cliffs maybe, you know, that's, that rise up thousands of feet in the air from the sea and the waves are just smashing against the cliffs. There's no place to stop. Some nights going day after day without any place to stop. And then when you do find a place to stop, there might be a really bad surf. There's, there's always a bad surf down there. And so you try to get onto the beach, but you might get capsized in the process. You try to go into a river mouth, but there's there's waves breaking on the bar. So you have this constant 
danger in addition to the people there's there really are people killing each other down there and stuff mm. and um <clears throat> so it was i was scared a lot of that time and that was the hardest part it took me six months to get to the end of that phase which was a a, a city of considerable size and a port called buenaventura colombia wow so were you given a, a lot of second thoughts to this at that point thinking about should i should i get the boat out of the water and get out of here or I, I was real. I was real. I was very much in doubt. Yeah, it was. I was not heard from for my parents thought that I might have died by that point. Oh. I was several months without communication. You're you're down there. There's no it might be different now, but it was just total wilderness. You know, right. <laughs> you can't go to the store and buy something or anything. You just have yeah, everything like how do you find water? How do you find food? how do you find people you can trust? How do you find information? Um, how do you, uh, like, for example, there was a stretch of several hundred miles where I knew I couldn't go on shore, but, or maybe it's just 100 miles or 200 miles, but I knew I couldn't go on shore. And, but I found that I could anchor out in the ocean. The, the water down there in that stretch is so shallow, even way out to sea, like 10 miles out, that you can still anchor out there. And you have to stay 10 miles out because if you get any closer to shore, the, um, the extreme tidal fluctuation means that where you are now at a certain point in the tidal cycle, there will be surf. So you have to be way out to sea so that at no stage of the tide will you be in surf. So you can't even see land and you're anchored way out there in the ocean, but it's shallow enough you can anchor and that's got a good anchoring bottom. Wow. Well, that's different. Certainly different. I, uh, I, I just have a thousand questions about this. I mean, you said in Panama you were you were held up at knife point. There's mm-hmm. got to be a story there. Oh, they just they just caught me. Everybody everybody I met there had been robbed. I mm. everybody who goes on the street gets robbed, and um, it's just um, it's just a den of thieves. Wow. And um, you know, they 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 ambush you in a certain kind of congested spot. They don't care if there's people around. They they hold a hold a knife to you and rifle your your uh, pockets real quickly and they're just professionals and they take almost no time. Wow! So how much did they get from you? Uh, almost nothing. I wasn't carrying anything, but because I I knew that it, that it would probably happen, so um, I only lost three dollars and a pocket knife. They took my passport, which I had to carry with me, but as I chased them, they dropped it and I picked it up. <laughs> wow, that's just crazy. Well, you know, with a boat that size, I could see someone just saying, hey, let's just go get that whole boat and take it. Did you have to fend anybody off? No, I don't think any, it never occurred to anybody to want to steal my boat. They just, they just could, nobody can relate to a boat like that. I mean, um, these people, in even in the most remote locations, it, it doesn't occur to them that that could be their boat. It's, it's so strange. Yeah, yeah, just kind of, it, it's out of place enough that people don't know what to do with it. Yeah, it has no motor, and so it's no good for um, being a pirate or a drug smuggler. <laughs> That's crazy. So when you were, boy, you were talking about being 10 miles offshore, you had to be facing some major rollers and, and stuff like that that far out, especially with a shallow bottom. Well, the big danger is when the um, the surf, well, it's it swells when you're out in the ocean, when the swells um, reach a certain, uh, shallowness of water. Um, 
and that is that's actually a very calculable thing. So you have to keep track of what the depth of the water where you are is and what the biggest size of rogue wave might be because it can because if you're too close or you get too big a rogue wave, it, you'll you'll be crushed in a huge roller. Mm. But other than that, that it was not it is not a, a stormy part of the world. It's it's not the storminess. Um, the the winds were never very strong. It's just the swell that is being produced from deeper into the Pacific Ocean. So on that stretch, did you find yourself sailing most of the way, rowing, or both? Both, and sometimes at the same time. Right. So you had two masts on this boat, one fore and one aft, um, the larger being in front. Yeah. And I was curious, can you even put up that back sail without the front one being pretty loaded? Well, that rig is called a yawl. In a yawl rig, the main mast is much smaller, and the rear mast is much I'm sorry, I said it the wrong way. The main mast is much larger, and the rear sail is much smaller. And in a yawl, it's actually the opposite of what you said. The in a yawl rig, you always keep the you always put the mizzen sail up first, and you keep it up the longest. In fact, much of the time you just never take down the mizzen. That's the rear, but the main sail is the one that you lower and raise, and you reef according to the strength of the wind. Mm, well, you can tell I'm a lover. <laughs> Well, the reason for that is that the mizzen mast is at the back. It's like a weather vane. So you, that's a good thing. When you um, take your hands off the tiller, you need to reef or prepare lunch or something. You just sheet the, the mizzen tight. That's your weather vane in the back. And you take down the front, and the boat, the boat just points into the wind. Oh, great. And, and into the waves. By now, you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bentgate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. So, and your top speed then is going to be about four knots if things are going well. Mm-hmm. So it takes a long time to cover the ground you had to cover out there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hmm. Okay, so you got to the port in Columbia, and then you portaged. So tell us about that part of the trip. Well, it was a series of pickup truck rides. There were three pickups that <clears throat> took me first to one city, then to another, and another, and... I stopped in a city along the way and caught up on my writing and then eventually found myself in Bogota, the capital, and the final truck ride, which was a cattle truck because they they raise cattle way down in the plains and then they bring them up to the big city to the slaughter yards. Well, that truck was going back empty, and so I, I got a, a cheap ride. 
and uh, dropped me off in a tributary of the Orinoco in the country of Colombia, and that river was called the Meta. And it was like the Great Plains. It was kind of like I was back in Missouri in that it was the Great Plains of South America, very flat, dry, open, uh, not very many trees, except often right along the river there would be trees, but it, it's just a short distance from the river. It's, 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 it's dry plains. And <clears throat> there the, the challenges were different. The wind was on the nose all the time, and I had difficulty making any progress in the daytime because it was windy to the point of very rough and white watery and splashing and unable to sail into the wind very efficiently. But at night, it, it, the wind just stopped, and it was very much a diurnal wind, a wind that was only activated by the heat of the day when it right. was very hot. And at night, there's just no wind whatsoever. So I got into a habit of sailing at night, which had the added benefit that I went through the region that was controlled by the guerrilla forces, the FARC, at night and never really bumped into them. Mm. So you had to be stealthy about it. You know, first you had to battle all of the the rough characters as you're going down the coast, but it, now you're going through FARC territory. So, man, did you ever get a, to a point where you could just relax and, and enjoy yourself? Oh, I would stop occasionally, and there'd be little towns, and I'd have some reason to to stop here and there, and have plenty of good. I had plenty of downtime, but eventually I'd just be ready to get going again. So this was by this point, it had to be 1991, right? Yeah. So that kind of gives people some context. That that was pretty troubled times in 1991 in Colombia. Mm. Yeah, they're basically a small. It was a civil civil war still going on. Wow. Kind of low level, low level civil war. So then the Orinoco, I assume, is uh, you got on the Orinoco before you hit Venezuela. Yeah, the um, the Meta. That's the little. That's the tributary. Not a small river. The Meta is about the same size as the Missouri, and the Orinoco is about the same size as the as the Mississippi. And um, when you're when you get onto the Orinoco, you have Colombia on your right bank and Venezuela. No, Colombia on your left bank and Venezuela on your right bank. You do that for for quite a while, and then you have Venezuela on both sides. Mm, okay. So how did you find Venezuela in comparison? Oh, Venezuela is um, not uh, – it's not my favorite place. It's not as – the people aren't as nice as in Colombia, in my opinion. Um, not, not, not terrible, but just, just not my favorite. Hmm. And so how long did it take you to get down the Orinoco back out to the Caribbean? Um, that was like three months. And then, then I came out, the mouth of the Orinoco, here again, conditions changed a lot. The, the mouth is no longer dry or um, desert-like. It's a uh, jungle, and it's a big swamp estuary, um, just vast. And you, you take, you wind your way through these... <clears throat> different sloughs, channels, uh, floating vegetation, monkeys, Indians in canoes. Um, it's just very different. And then you, then you come out onto the, you start feeling that pulse of the ocean. You know, you start noticing that there's a little bit of a tidal influence in the, in the jungle where you are. You're, one night I was tied up in a little, it wasn't even a cove. It was just kind of like a notch in this, in the bank of the river. And, and during the night, there was a tidal drop, and I, 
I, I woke up with the boat sitting on top of um, some kind of like big logs or something that that were heavier than water, so they just sink to the bottom. But when you land on top of them, you, they're an un, they're an uneven, so the the boat is kind of tilted at a weird angle, like about ready to fall over or something. <laughs> but uh, you just don't move, go back to sleep, and by the time you wake up, the water level's back up, and you can go. <laughs> wow. So you knew you were getting close. Was that exciting? Yes, very much so. You know, it's it's all great in retrospect, but at the time, these these voyages can be very tedious and wearisome. And you know, you're you're just always just looking forward to the next whatever. You just want really you want relief from whatever is currently going on. You know, you want to get to that next destination. And and so I was very much looking forward to being out into the open ocean again. What was the weather like? It sounds like it could be really hot. Yes, that's a very hot, hot, hot part of the world. Uh, windy yet hot, just totally desiccating. Mm. So how do you do in the heat? I don't know how I would do with that. You know, I did all right, but it's it's not my favorite. Um, I think that I, I lived, and then in my more recent voyage, I was in the heat so long that um, I'm just enjoying being up here at you know, on the Canadian border still, right. you know, um, it, with, with, with cold, you can dress for it, but when it's too hot, you can't dress for it. You get, you, you get down to naked and you can't take anything more off it after that. Yeah, I was going to say sometimes, your skin is still there. Yeah. Sometimes you can pour water on yourself and then when it evaporates, it cools you off. But, uh, sunburn, uh, insects, you got some terrible insects and it's difficult dealing with heat and insects at the same time. So, at this point in this amazing trip, did you kind of get to the point of saying, what was I thinking? Why am I doing this? Or were you always uh, carried forward by your, your thirst for adventure? I had my spirits drop sometimes. Um, and when I would come to a stop, I would, I would complete some phase and then I'd get myself, like I said, where I'm looking forward to that next time of repose or Re, regenerating my batteries and I'd be in some town and I'd be, I have a comfortable situation, but then it's kind of the reverse is what really happens when you, uh, stop for a while, you would go in, I would go into kind of a depression because, um, all that stress was cumulative mm-hmm. and I'm still worried about what's going to happen next. And I'm lonely. And sometimes being in, around people can exacerbate loneliness more than anything else. And so, Really, my, my times of being sedentary, though, well, they could be from a couple days to as long as three months, were, were in a way the worst times. But once I got started again, I always got the spirit up again. It was always good to get going again. Yeah. And I got fully into it again. I, wasn't, I was never like starting to get worn out with it. I was always 100% once I got moving again. I never lost my, my gusto. Nice. Well, from there you hit the the Caribbean and started going north, and this, so this is a totally different leg of the journey again. What was it like going through the islands? Yeah, the islands are pretty well situated for sailing a boat, even just a small boat. the The wind and the currents are both favorable for that route that I took. That is, you're you're going downwind and down current most of that time, and so. You know, you can often see the next island ahead of you, and you know what you're aiming for. And um, it's some um, different cultures, the English-speaking uh, black cultures and some Spanish countries. 
But um, that part of the voyage was more a matter of dealing with the sea. That that really was sailing. You know, that's the part of the voyage that really was a sailing trip because I had right. to really, I had to really get that down. You know, how to not capsize and find find the correct island and everything. So, did you capsize? I capsized uh, off the coast of Colombia. That was in the second phase of the voyage. That was uh, that was the worst capsize. That was the only really bad capsize. Um, in that capsize, um, the boat was up. Well, the boat flipped over and filled up with water, but it didn't sink, of course. And then it had no it had no stability anymore when it's full of water. Uh, but I I figured out a way to um, bail the water water out of the boat and self rescue. Wow. Other times I capsize in the surf. <laughs> well, with a boat that size, you know, capsizing is never fun, but at least it's something that you could flip back over if you needed to. Yeah, it's easy to roll over. Well, that's fascinating. So as you traveled north through all the islands, uh, any hardships or, or really great times that you had along the way? Um, some of the more uh, exciting places were Haiti, which... <clears throat> is got its own um, kind of scary energy to it. <clears throat> and then um, Cuba, it comes right after that, Cuba very differently. So I didn't enter really in a – I was off the beaten track. They don't expect me to come there. So they, I was held in detention for several days before mm. they decided to let me go. And they were, they were wonderful people. It's one of my favorite countries, but it was a little – uncertain at times well politically that was a tough place to go back then yeah it's probably about it's easier now i'm sure yeah so travel up cuba did you go to the bahamas on the way in or did you just shoot straight to the keys from from cuba i crossed over to florida stopping at a bahamas key along the way called Sal. it's not anything that the tourist route might have been aware of it's a little kind of isolated place that i stopped at just for one night mm. and then where did, where did you make landfall back in the states uh that was a little key called windley key it's just one of the real tiny ones about halfway up the chain and then what happened how did the journey conclude i got myself a what do you call it? You call it auto transport drive away. I don't know if this still happens, but you look under the yellow pages under auto transport drive away. They give you a car that needs to be returned someplace. Right. No money exchanges hands. And I got a trailer for my boat and um, I think it already had a trailer hitch and I just drove home. All the way back and, to. Uh... Yeah. All the way back to Bremerton, Washington. End of trip. <laughs> 15,000 miles, about half of that in the water. Um, what an amazing thing. Three years. So when it was all said and done, were you glad that you did it? Yeah, and I was ready to be back. Oh, I'll bet. So you did a similar journey, but um, with a, a little bit larger boat, but still a very small boat with your wife, Jenny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that boat is called Thurston, and it's of a of a make and model. I didn't design it myself. It's called the sea pearl. Um, you can find these boats there. They're still around and it's a 21 footer that is, um, kind of ultralight and shallow draft and kind of narrow. So it's a light, a light, small boat. And, um, but similar in other ways, it has a 
kind of very minimalist cabin that you can't quite sit up in and it's got enough room to store your stuff but not while you're sleeping in it you might have to move the stuff aside in order to to go to bed so your mode of travel is very similar uh the boat's a little bit bigger but there's two of you instead of one and so you're following along a coast and looking for a place to uh tie up or anchor and um a little bit better capabilities for um somewhat longer passages so this was in from 2008 to 2014 that you were doing this what, yeah. what kind of places did you go? That's a pretty good chunk of time. Okay, we started in Florida. That's where we found the boat, and we uh, adapted it to our purposes, and we uh, went down the Gulf Coast of Florida to the Keys, crossed over to Cuba. So this is my second time in Cuba. And then from Cuba, sailed across the Yucatan Channel to Mexico, that's the Yucatan coast of Mexico. And following south along that coastline, which is a lot of coral reefs, down to Panama, Colombia. But this all this time it's on the on the Caribbean side rather than the Pacific side. Right. And then upon reaching Colombia, see they these are the this is the area of the trade winds. The the winds always blow from east to west, and so we were going against the trade winds in an easterly direction along the coast of Colombia and Venezuela until we broke things up at that point by uh, doing a, a portage into the interior of Venezuela and got onto the Orinoco River. Um, part of that stretch of the Orinoco overlapped with where I had been before, but not too much of it because mostly we went upstream on the Orinoco. We had a, at first, we didn't have any motor. It was a sailboat, rowboat. But when we got to Panama, knowing that we'd have to go upwind for so long, we got a two-horsepower outboard motor. It's the mm. Honda two-horse. And with this thing, we were able to go upriver. So we went all the way up the Orinoco until there is a – the correct term would be a distributary of it. This is a very unusual thing. But the river – a little bit of the river kind of splits off. And goes in a different direction and joins up with the Amazon River. Wow. And so we were able to go up the Orinoco and then take a right onto a distributary and ended up in the Amazon. Wow, that is so yeah. cool. And then... Yeah, and then, then we're in the upper reaches of the Amazon. It's actually a tributary of the Amazon called the Rio Negro, which is, you know, it's so big. The the Rio Negro is bigger than any river in the world except for the Amazon itself is bigger than the Nile or anything. It's it's just vast. It's got it's got the biggest um, chain of river islands in the world. Um, it's got just a huge flow. And then you come to you know after weeks and weeks of pure wilderness, only only interrupted by occasional small towns, you come to a big city, Manaus. Manaus is the size of Seattle. And it's nonetheless isolated. You don't drive to Manaus. You only fly there or get there by boat. And just a very intriguing place. We fell in love with um, Brazil. We fell in love with the Amazon, um, the, especially the Rio Negro, because the water is black, as, as the name implies, because of some tannic acid in it that prevents all mosquito life. So there's no mm, mosquitoes there. That's nice. <clears throat> and then from there, we just kept going south. We were... We went um, 
uh, here we were coming south, but downstream on a tributary of the Amazon. Well, we next went, continued south, but now upstream on another tributary, and that took us to Bolivia. And then from there, we made another portage from that tributary to the Paraguay, which, as the name implies, goes through the country of Paraguay. And going south on it until we got to Argentina and Uruguay. <clears throat> so a very different parts of the world, very different kinds of cultures. And then, then later we came back into Brazil, but in a different route that follows more to the east, still not on the coast, but, you know, Brazil is a very big country. We came southward along its western boundaries with Bolivia and Paraguay. But when we went back north, we went right through the middle of the country on these other rivers called the Paraná and the Araguaia, and came back out onto the, um, onto the Amazon River that we had our son George along the way in a town in, Bolivia, in Brazil. Congratulations. That's awesome. And then when we got to, um, back to the Amazon River in a big city called Manaus, Jenny and George flew home because from there I had to go into the ocean, and ocean travel would not be suitable for a wife and a baby. Right. So. I spent the last five months by myself trying to get back to the United States and made it about two-thirds of the way. And as I came out the mouth of the Amazon, which was one of the most difficult sailing, sailing challenges I ever had, and then followed the coastline of South America. That's the Guyanas. There's the French Guyana, Dutch Guyana, British Guyana, um, then the islands, um, Trinidad, and so forth. And here I started following some of the same route that I had been on before. But when I got to a uh, passage between, between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, I capsized in the surf upon, upon reaching the Dominican Republic. Both masts broke and I lost my rowing equipment. And I had been five months separated from my family, so I just sold the boat on the beach to the highest bidder, and uh, got an air, airplane ticket, and that was the end of that voyage. Wow, what an amazing time. It, it's fascinating to me that uh, that you and Jenny were able to do this. Did you have to talk her into this, or was she on board with the idea? Totally on board. Uh, there's no talking into her into it at all. She is just a remarkable person. She's, she's small and not real physical, but she, she's just brave. She's just ready, ready to try it. And she, she, um, loves nature. She is, um, uh, well, how to put it. She, uh, she kind of, um, doesn't have to have people around her all the time. She's sort of introverted like myself. Well, that's amazing. So this was, it started in 2008. So about, about 15 years between the two trips during that time, were you just longing to get out and try it again? It was the same story. I was, well, I had during the three-year voyage, I had, I had, I had exercised my wanderlust to a pretty deep state. I, I, I didn't need to be traveling anymore for a while because I'd been doing it so much. So I, I just was back in a regular life. And then, and then, um, whatever. I think it's eighteen years went by, and then slowly the wanderlust built back up again, and so I was ready to go. Mm. Well, that's really, really neat. So many people want to go cruising on a sailboat like you're talking about, but I don't think there are many who considered the idea of going through all of the rivers 
and using a small enough boat that you could go even in streams. Mm-hmm. I mean, that opens up areas that would just be impossible otherwise. Yeah, it's um, here again, it's kind of a hybrid form of travel. The um, It's not very uncommon for people to travel on rivers with canoe or a kayak, and that's that's a good way to travel. It gives you the ability to easily portage. But in our boat, we're able to kind of do somewhat of this and of the other. That is, we're able to travel on the rivers and get a portage when necessary. But we can also do the saltwater portions. See, we have that that um, cape cross crossing over capability. Mm, very, very cool. Yeah, I I love the the idea of how efficient you can be as as far as the portages and that sort of thing in a small vessel like that. But then again, when you're talking about, well, you really have to watch the surf because it's going to capsize you. You know, that kind of a, a thought makes you go, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe a bigger boat would make sense. Depends on what yeah. your goals are, right? Definitely. You just have to – you just dial in on a on a scale of things and just live with your choice because the trade-offs are just huge. Mm. You just decide – you just decide this is a spectrum. You just, you just have to pick a point on that spectrum and then – and then you live with it. You kind of try to optimize for that point on the spectrum. You know, you mentioned when you've traveled straight out of high school that it really changed you. And uh, just your perception of the whole world, I'm sure, was different and of yourself. I I think often a young man leaves on a trip like that and he comes back a real man. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, was, I was just um, immature, you know, and... Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was I had not I had not developed powers of observation particularly. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what I was even seeing very much. I was traveling on that one year trip. I was traveling in out of the way places in Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan and uh, <clears throat> I was just seeing all sorts of cool stuff. All all I knew was it was very interesting, but <clears throat> I was mostly just um uh kind of exploring myself. Sure. Well, I have to ask, you know, you had that trip, you had the trip on Squeak, and then you had the trip on Thurston, is that what you said? Yeah, Thurston. Thurston. Um, Three major trips, and two of them just amazing major trips. What's the takeaway from that? How did that impact you as as a human and as a member of society? I'm afraid I don't have a good answer to that. No, no glib answer or anything. I... I just um, am who I am. <laughs> well, I can guarantee you, you wouldn't be who you are now if you had not done those trips. Yeah. On the other hand, being who I am, I, of course, did go on those trips. So. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Very well said. Very well said. Well, let's remind the listeners how they can get more information. I mean, you've written this stuff out. Um, the The first trip is in the book which was three years in a 12-foot boat, which you can get from Amazon as an ebook. And where can they get information about the second trip with Jenny? We have a, we kept up a travel blog that's still up online. And um, during that five years, we wrote a constant series of articles, which were published in the Small Craft Advisor. If you like boating, I, and especially in small boats, I strongly re- recommend a subscription to the Small Craft Advisor. Um, but the... Articles that we wrote for the Small Craft Advisor were also we also publish ourselves on our blog website, and that can be found at theadventuresofginnyandsteve.com. 
the adventures of Jenny and Steve.com. Yeah. So, you'll get all the stories and you'll get, you know, true stories and you'll get all our photographs. Nice. Boy, I tell you what, there's, so we're talking about years worth of content, talking about armchair travel. People could, could go a long time on that diet. Mm-hmm. That's really, really cool. Well, man, we have burned through the time and, uh, it would be fun to be able to dive more into details of the second trip with Jenny. I think that sounds fascinating. What's next on the horizon though? No real plans. Um, I have a, a new different kind of boat, but it's uh, a long ways from completion. And my, my family situation doesn't allow me to, to do much. Um, besides having two little kids, I'm, uh, and my wife are taking care of an elderly mother. So not too much travel right now. Okay. Well, I'm sure that given time, the, the itch is going to hit again. And I'd be fascinated to find out what you choose to do the next time. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I think your story is is novel and inspirational. And it kind of goes to show that if you decide you want to do something, you can do it. I mean, few people would think you could get in a 12-foot boat and make that journey, but yet you did it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true. That's very, very cool stuff. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for involving me in this. I get yeah. to tell my story again. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that our listeners got to hear it because it's a story worth telling. Really, really, really cool. And for the listeners out there, you know what I'm going to say. I say at every show, get out there and have some fun. It may not be a 12-foot boat for 15,000 miles, or maybe it would be. Who knows? But the most important part of this whole thing is to realize that if you have a dream, you can achieve the dream. You just have to sort out the parameters. Thanks a lot, Steve. Have a, have a great evening. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and be sure to tell all your friends about the show. Everybody deserves a little adventure. Until the next episode, get out there and try something new.